Welcome to Land a Job You Love podcast. I'm your host and career coach, Kajal Bansal. If you're someone who's looking for that sense of fulfillment in their career, you've come to the right place because in this podcast, I'll be speaking with inspirational industry leaders who have followed their true interests and instincts to land work they love and give you advice on how you can do the same. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I mean, we talked a little bit about this. So in my work as a career coach, I'm coming across a lot of women. I work a lot mostly with women and kind of like millennial women. So into your thirties now where you've been working in a space for a while and just feeling like you're not fulfilled by work, but you've invested so much time into this path and you don't necessarily know how to get out of it. A lot of times it's like women who don't know how to speak to the work experience that they have or sometimes feel like it's not valuable when then you look at it as a career coach and you're like, this is so valuable. And so I really wanted to speak to industry-leading women such as yourself who really like very clearly have tuned into their own instincts and their own interests to land work that they love in the hopes that we can have someone hear this and kind of like start to move in the direction that might make them feel a bit more fulfilled at work too. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited. This is, I think, something that's such a universal experience these days that it's so important for people to be in conversation around it so that they just know it's okay to do different things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think just to kind of kick things off, I think everybody who listens to this is going to know who you are, but just in your own words, if you can share who you are and what you do. Yes, I'm Komal Minhas. I am a resilience educator, executive coach, and business strategist. So I help a lot of early stage startup founders make sense of their businesses and their brains so that they can scale and make the impact that they want in the world. And then I love to share things about positive psychology, resiliency, as I mentioned, and just overall how to live a great life. These are all things that get me fired up and that I've just really enjoyed sharing with the world and the world has been happy to receive, it seems. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't wait to get into this. I think a lot of your experience really mirrors a lot of mine in terms of burnout leading to illness, leading to taking you out of the work, you know, working game for a long time and then really having to reevaluate how you're living your life. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. But before we do, I wanted to share a story with you about how I first came to know you. So this was before Michelle Obama, before Oprah, Super Soul 100, like literally before Instagram. If Facebook was in its infancy, it was 2009. I was part of this student leadership. I know. I've known you for a long time. This is a throwback. This is a throwback. Yeah. So it was, I was part of this student leadership group. It was called Isaac. Yes. And do you know? Yes, we're at ice. Well, my friends used to call us eye suckers. So we're eye suckers. <laughs> That's so funny. And there was this conference, I think it was in Halifax, but I can't be too sure. And you were there. Yes, I actually, was this the Winnipeg? I, I did Quebec City and I did Winnipeg. I can't remember if I went to Halifax, but it was one of those, like, yes, there was like a national convention. Yes. Yes. Okay, you went, maybe it was in Winnipeg then. I'm originally from Winnipeg, so maybe that was where it was. I don't know. But it's so interesting because even back then, like before anyone would have had a way to find your work, right? Like there wasn't that much of a platform to share work with an audience back then. And everybody knew who you were. And when you walked into a room, everybody could feel your presence. It was like this feel, I had goosebumps now talking about it. Like, it's just that everybody knew that you were going to be a person who does something special. And we were 21 years old. It's like at a time when nobody has that 
vision. But literally, I remember people being like, like whispering in the hallways, like Como from Carlton. And now looking back kind of in prep for this conversation, I was thinking to myself, now I'm 35, like, what do I think that was that energy, that frequency that you carried? And what I think it was is like this feeling of self-belief that most people don't have at 21. It was this feeling that you maybe knew that you were going to do really special things and that energy kind of resonated and transcended, you know? And I wanted to know just as a first question, where does that land for you? Does that sound like you at 21? Well, first of all, thank you because that's such a beautiful recollection, memory to share. And also I really appreciate, you know, it's so interesting when we're in these spaces or just like in life to be seen by another is like such a gift in period. Like it's something we all long for to feel like connected to one another or connected to ourselves or to feel believed in. And I think actually like a precursor to even just my own self-belief is just this witnessing or support from people who saw something special in me as a young person and encouraged that and nurtured that to say, you're allowed to believe in yourself. You're allowed to have big dreams. You're allowed to go and swing big and try for, you know, these you know, massive dreams that you have. And so I would say at 21, it was still in this like fervent exploration of what is potential? What does it mean to lead? What does it mean to make impact? What does it mean to have skills or talents that you can share with others that they feel galvanized by, that they feel, you know, like, What's that something in me that I see in this other person? What's it sparking in me to want to do more of? So I feel like at that age, that was certainly there. And I also think for many of us, our sense of self or our drive, especially for a lot of type A people, a lot of the women that you mentioned who are maybe feeling this burnout in our 30s after achieving so many big goals, it was a driver for me to get out of hard situations, like growing up in a very difficult and and traumatic household, it was like, this was my ticket out, was believing in myself, believing there was more, believing in my big dreams. It was something, you know, my mother nurtured in me too, to just say like, you can always imagine more for yourself, that you can make an impact in the world, that you can help others. So I think it's this confluence of things that would have led to us like having that perfect, chaotic, wonderful meet through Isaac. But I think that self-belief It goes from like a a fragile sort of self-belief when you're young to like a very rooted and grounded one as we age into our 30s or it has there's a potential for it to do that where it's like this isn't just an idea anymore. I now have the information or the track record to know that this is deeply rooted confidence now. So that's something I'm grateful for in terms of what aging has given me as a gift. Just this more deeply embedded self-belief. That's so beautiful. That was actually going to be my next question is if you feel that that self-belief is a product of nature or nurture, it's great to hear that you have a mom that really like nurtured that in you. Do you think a lot of that was instilled in you just in yourself or, or do you think that it was a lot of parenting and environment? I have to give my mom a lot of kudos here because it was like I shared a difficult environment growing up. I I lived in a family that my aunt and uncle, my mom, my dad decided to raise their children together as you do in Punjabi families. And so there was five of us kids, my three cousins, my brother and I, and then other family members who would come and go. My other cousin was adopted into our family. And so there was just like a lot of moving parts. And my uncle was an abusive alcoholic. And so it was this ongoing chaos. But what my mom provided, both my brother and I in particular, was this steady anchor through the storm of it all. And that anchor was education. She would make my brother and I compete in school, not by design. Even though he was two years older than me, we'd like come home with report cards and I'd be like, Vikram Bhaji, I beat you by 3%, whatever. And it's like, we're not even doing the same classes. This makes no sense. 
But it was this fervent application of education, but then also extracurriculars because she was more of a sports student when she was young in India and always breaking barriers, always pushing boundaries. And she has this deep sense of self-worth and confidence because she actually grew up in somewhat of a more stable environment than I did, which is not the usual norm. It's like generationally we improve, but my mom's upbringing was quite stable and loving and nurturing of those parts of her, even though it was a strict environment. So I had this mother who like in some ways was more healed than I had the opportunity to be, but nurtured in me the best parts of what her upbringing gave her. And so that was a really powerful thing to experience. And then now in my adulthood, it's like nurture, yes, but then there are also these factors of the trauma and how that makes your resiliency more fragile or can make your resiliency more fragile and how I've as an adult had to like root into the way that she saw me, choose the parts that actually suit me as an adult and then build a stronger foundation under all of that through a strong community, through good health, wealth and, or sorry, uh, wellness and well-being, partnership with, with a loving partner. So I would say nurture is a huge part of it. And, you know, this is what we see with a lot of folks where it's like, if only they had supportive teachers, supportive parents, supportive community, a society that invested better in certain communities, what change would that create? So I think nurture is like a massive aspect of building meaningful self-belief, but it doesn't mean that it can't be rebuilt or can't be built as we age. The research shows us, especially around resiliency and a concept called self-efficacy, our belief in ourselves that we can do hard things, that this is something we can build as a skill for ourselves, but we have to actively be working on it. That's so beautiful. In in doing the research, it's like one core tenet of your work really does seem to be this idea of resilience and reading more into your story with the rare form of skin cancer, going into the neurological illness. It's like, if anybody could teach anybody about resilience, I really feel like that person is you. Can you talk to us a little bit about how resilience may be factored into your life and how important it is and why it is so important for you to now teach others a little bit about how to get through kind of like tough times. It's really interesting. I heard this phrase once where it was, you teach to others what you most need to learn yourself. (sighs) And so this like framework of resiliency, I call the roots of resilience, came up through the pandemic actually. And it was when I needed to pivot my business, I realized I have an opportunity to explore my lived experience, explore resiliency research, and explore the stories of others that I had the opportunity to interview like over 100 founders across North America, leaders, folks in in politics, and really pull all these pieces together and say like, what is the core of this? And what was really powerful was my personal experience and the stories I was shared with me matched the research, which makes sense because who's researched? Humans are researched. So if these are the things that I noticed in my own story, then I just knew that it was something I wanted to share with others as we were collectively going through such a difficult thing, like a global pandemic and lockdowns. But where did this like quality of resiliency come from? I think it was like survival we all survive in different ways. Like even in my household, the way that each of me and my cousins and and my brother chose to move through what we went through were very different. But a core part of this that I teach through the roots of resilience, there's a number of things that I teach, but is community. And I grew up always seeing the power of community and what it looked like to have meaningful and strong relationships. And then I also saw examples of like fragile and chaotic and difficult relationships. And so what I chose as a child and like as I grew up was witnessing what other people went through as a way to learn lessons and not do certain things. So we often hear like people aren't willing to learn 
the lessons that you try and say with your face <laughs> to people. Like they have to go through it themselves. But I was somewhat the inverse at times because I had four older siblings to look up to, parents who were, and, and, and my aunt and uncle who just all had their own forms of chaos. And it was just like, how do I choose different? And I think that was really the foundation of my resilience. But for the listeners, some key ways for you to build your resilience is to really focus, yes, and double down on your community. Specifically for women, too, research shows that our women friendships are core markers of a long life. So the closer we are to our people, the more we lean on them, the more we share our, what we need to share with them, offload some of the burden of what we're feeling emotionally, actually supports us in building and being more resilient. Other things are taking care of our well-being and wellness. So you shared about my experience surviving cancer and my neurological illness. And a huge part of my survival of that era was pulling back from the hustle culture, from the pressure cooker that is, you know, parts of capitalism and really asking what does my body need and what does my health need right now? And how do I prioritize those things to recover? And there is privilege that comes with this. I live in Canada where there is universal health care. That was something that uh, I moved back from New York to be able to access because it, I wouldn't have been able to afford the care I needed in New York. And then also the privilege of having financial security to be able to take, you know, some time off. But being able to find ways to take care of our well-being and connect to community help us build our resiliency. So like you can see, the pandemic gave me the opportunity to really understand what's the science behind this, but then also how do I share this in a way that helps people amplify their own resilience or build their own resiliency in a better way? Oh, there's just so much that kind of interlinks in terms of what I want to ask you and what you're kind of talking about. Like one thing that really stands out to me is this, you started your business at 23. So like, did you ever, after graduating university, did you ever work for somebody? Did you join the corporate world? Like what did, what did the steps after university look like for you? Yes. So I went straight from university to a company in Toronto, actually, at the Mars Discovery District called Social Innovation Generation. So I was an intern for them for, I think I was like 10 months or so, but I was wildly underemployed in the role. I would often finish my workload in like the first two or three days of the week and then just like go into the office. And I just felt this, you know, that young me that you would have seen at 21 that was like bursting with potential and ideas and all this energy. I was just sitting in an office and I was done my job and I had to keep showing up, but there was no work. Like there was nothing for me to sink my teeth into that I could take to a next level. And so I was poached by another company here in Ottawa where I was becoming a community manager for a group of predominantly entrepreneurs. And I was super stoked on this, this position as well. But when I went in the culture and the work environment, and I think the role overall just didn't end up being a great fit. So three months in, I was fired. And the day that I was fired, and I mean, huge ego hit for someone who's a type A overachiever, succeeds at everything, was poached from a company in Toronto, made like made it through like five interview rounds to get this job in Ottawa, one of the youngest applicants, and then make it through to the final role and position. And then in this relationship with a boss who was a friend or friendship, not a relationship, but where we used to be friends. And then when I became an employee, it was just such a you're, I'm the boss, you're an employee. And then network mining that had happened with that boss trying to leverage a lot of wow. my, my network at the time. So it was just quite toxic. But the day that I was fired, 
I started my company. <laughs> I went to my my friend and mentor's house and I was just like, what do I do now? And he's like, you get ahead of it. They hadn't emailed the community yet about what had happened and I still had access to the email list. So I sent an email to the full email list and said, you know, I got bit by the entrepreneurship bug and I'm starting my own business and doing video production and media consulting. If any of your companies are interested in working with me, please let me know. I'm so excited to be, you know, become a member just like all of you and to be able to move my my business and entrepreneurship forward. Needless to say, once that email went out, then they locked me out of everything, which like preemptively could have been a better choice for them. But then that is actually like my first email blast and enabled me to get my first few clients in my freelance business. And so that was the starting journey. And that was when I was, I think, 22 or 23. So about 10 years ago now. And my business became sort of this incubator for me to play with creative ideas, to see what was going to land. That is where, you know, Dream Girl, the documentary came into my life. And I ended up helping produce that and premiere that at the Obama White House, where we were able to raise angel investing or investments for making that film. And then from there, the evolution began to podcasting, to creating a media site and news site, and then also now doing more business consulting and business strategy with early stage founders. So it was like the base of my business or like the structure of my business enabled me to evolve into what I was supposed to be doing, which is where I am now. But it started because I was fired. <laughs> That's such an important story. I think it, I, I'm so happy that people are going to hear this because it's, it, we talk about this a lot in this podcast. It's so easy to someone for someone to land on your social media page and look through it and be like, this girl's got it all and make the assumption that maybe you have the network somehow, or maybe you knew the right people to get to, you know, it's like these assumptions that people can make when they just see images, not knowing that there's so much depth behind the story of like, that's how it started. Like you got let go and then you had to take the courage and you had to have the vision to figure out what the next steps are. And so I think it's so important for people to know, especially if you're feeling like you're not where you want to be yet, so much can, can happen in life. And sometimes the areas where you're not the happiest or where something doesn't work out is like a great foundation or place to start in the direction or the redirection of where you want to go. Mm. And we often look at like the hardest things that happen to us. And I'm 100% not going to be that person that's like, everything happens for a reason. What's the reason? Why did I have to have cancer? Don't Literally. accept the reason, you know, like I'm not that person. And what I will say is that so much of our strength is born from the difficulties that we come through and endure. And sometimes we wish we didn't have to build that strength. Like there was that uh, meme that went around at some point during the pandemic where someone said, I wish I didn't have a life where I had to be resilient. I wish I could be soft. I wish I could, you know, live a different quality of life. And it's so true for so many of us. Like if we could choose different, we would. And I choose not to regret my past or I choose not to resent my past. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I'm like, I lost two, three years of my 20s to being sick when I had could have had so much more energy, could have made so many more leaps and bounds forward. Even for me, I have regrets in my career that I wish I would have been able to do things differently. And part of therapy and part of, you know, living a full life now is me just accepting and finding ways to accept like the cards I was dealt and find a way to move forward that serves the life that I want to have and not the one that was dealt to me with circumstances out of my control. It's like, what can I turn this into that could serve me better now? And leaning into that side of things can be really hard, especially in the 
aftermath of ex- like life explosions that can happen. Sometimes we do just have to like go through the process of letting the debris settle and the dust settle and letting like things fall where they need to and feeling out of control. But just knowing that with time and space, like there will be a semblance of sense making of all the things that happened and and what can happen next. But we got to go through the chaos of it first before we can get there. Do you ever experience self-doubt in your business, in your life? Like the way you speak, I'm just like, I wish I could think like that. And it's so hard. Like, I'm just curious to know from you, like where your vantage point, do you experience self-doubt maybe specifically with your business, financial insecurity, like all that kind of stuff? Like, what does that feel like for you? Do you worry about it? Oh, endlessly. I, I don't know a business owner who isn't, you know, at some point in their career or like regularly throughout their career in a state of financial uncertainty especially when you're a driver of your business. And like my business is still considered not even a small business, but like a micro business in the scale of businesses. And even like I was at this government roundtable last week with the provincial minister for small business. And he literally said, he was like, you know, we're focusing on these multi-billion dollar deals for EVs for the province of Ontario. But once that's settled, then we'll start dealing with like the 85,000 small businesses that registered last year. And it's like, we are an afterthought, even from a policy perspective. And so when you're looking at the stressors on these micro businesses, on it being, you know, service-based or intellect-based or in a knowledge economy, in an online space, there's so much vulnerability and fragility that we have because so much of our services are based on our own time, are based on our own energy expenditure, are based on what we can create versus like a manufacturing line or a product-based business. Those are still very difficult. And especially in the startup phase can be very difficult to navigate. But this financial insecurity, I think it's also just like a cultural or emotional thing. And even for you know, I'll say this in a gendered lens, women or folks who have historically been marginalized in a financial sense or haven't had their own financial independence for more than a generation or two in their lineage. Like this is something that we're reckoning with. It's constant exploration, trying to get rid of stories that women aren't as good with wealth management as men for whatever reason, seeing the statistics around how women investors generally outperform male investors. And again, I'm talking in a gender lens because this is where most of the research is. It's in that binary. But yeah, 100% self-doubt, financial, you know, questions and all of this. But the more we stay in a space and then the more that we follow the flow of our life, like the more that confidence grows. Like my financial self-belief is significantly higher than it would have been four or five years ago because I intentionally took time to improve my skills, to improve my knowledge, to not avoid that side of things. So even if there's insecurity now, it's a very different level of insecurity than it was five years ago. I heard this quote too that like, Wealth isn't just the amount of money you have, it's your self-belief and your ability to make money. And so the more that I believe in myself and know that I have the skills to make money, the more it can be like, if all this got wiped out tomorrow, I would still know where I could restart. And it would be hard, but I could do it. And so it's like a constant self-coaching, really. And this, you know, I have a self-coaching guide as one of the things that are in our product suite. And it's because... You can have a coach, you can have a therapist, you can have a good support system, but that inner self-talk, the questions you ask yourself, the conversations you're willing to have with yourself are so important because at the end of the day, like you got to have that strength and like strong relationship with you and all the parts of you because you live in your head all day, every day. 
Gosh, this is so powerful. It's just, it goes back to this thing where it's easy to look at somebody and be like, they just have it all together without knowing that you've invested time, personal time in learning a little bit more, becoming a little bit more financially literate so that you can advocate for yourself and show up for yourself and be there for yourself. That's so powerful. And I think that's such a powerful takeaway. And the reason I think I'm asking you about this is because it's something that I'm dealing with right now where it's like, I'm so strong in my mission and I know exactly, I know the vision so clearly of what I want and everything, like my intuition and everything in me knows that this is the direction I need to go in. And yet when I look at present day, it's like, you don't know if you're going to get to that vision. You don't know how long it's going to take you to get to that vision. And even something like this podcast, as you know, like it costs money to put together a podcast, like somebody else edits it and somebody else makes the real snippets, you know, and it's like, and I don't really have any major goals for sponsors. That's like, like, I didn't start this to get a sponsor. And so it's hard to reconcile those two things when you have this intuition and this knowingness and this feeling that you're meant to move in a certain direction. And yet today it's like the financial side of things, they, they don't add up. And so it can be hard. Like I have to have that conversation with myself every day of like, being strong enough to stay with it and stick with it. And it's, I'm so happy to speak, to be speaking with you, Komal, because one of the biggest reasons I wanted to ask you, and you're such a perfect person to have. And like for this conversation, I'm so grateful you said yes, is because when I look at your life and I look at your career, it looks like it's been built by design. And I think there's so many different components of that, where it's like, you want your life to be spent doing work you feel passionate about, but you also want to be a person who makes the time to take care of themselves. And sometimes you can't do that in a world where you're working in a corporation for 80 hours a a week. And so I I feel like I'm just like unloading on you, but it's just hard to find the pathway through all of that, I guess. And I'm just wondering if you go through those moments too. Oh, certainly. I think that one of the biggest proponents of my business strategy side of my business is encouraging the founders that I work with we have to cut through the shiny object syndrome. We have to cut through what we're seeing other people do. And we have to get to the nucleus of what makes a business. And that is products that fit a market that desires the solution to the problem you're solving. So what I mean by that is I would, in the past, and part of the career moments you've probably seen me go through, focus on my vision exclusively without looking at who in the world, like we're still in a consumerist capitalist system. And so we can go from like, believe in your dreams, go and do the thing, spend the money on the thing. But then when we get to the base of it, it's like, no, you need to pay your bills. You need to practically be able to live your life. You need certain supports to be able to do what you're going to do. And how do we bring those two things together? It's through solid and sound business strategy, solid and sound, figuring out like what, if the podcast is step one, what I'm going to need to have that job. Like, does it need to be the full-time 80-hour-a-week gig to be able to support this thing? That's where we get to do the strategizing around, is it actually a part-time role? Is it me freelancing and having clients that support this bigger vision? But we have to create our own version of our side hustle to the side hustle because we need a financial foundation to support our overall well-being and mental health. Financial instability is such a crucifix to overall well-being and successful mindset to be able to do what's in front of us. 
So that's why we see so many actors who are bartenders. That's why we see we see so many people who keep, you know, a small roster of clients while they continue to build their business. There has to be a core function that enables you to financially succeed. And on top of that, then we can build from this space of where the creative thing you're trying to build or put in the world doesn't have to fulfill the financial outcome that we need, we might need it to eventually, but it can get the legs that it needs so that eventually sponsors can come on, or eventually you have a backend product that you're selling that an audience is listening to and ready to, to consume. But before that, it's like, we got to take the survival instinct out of it. And for some people, they might be like, no, the survival instinct is what gets you through. And it's like, why does entrepreneurs have the highest rates of poor mental health and suicide than the general public? This might be a big part of it because we're setting unrealistic expectations for a lot of the people who enter this space without giving them enough information to understand that this is no joke. This is hard. And these dreams are, are beautiful and can be fulfilled in a slow and steady way while we're financially taking care of ourselves. It doesn't have to happen overnight. My career has been 10, 12 years in development. And even where I am now, like I could be putting more pressure on myself to be at the next stage. But I also just like like my life. And so if in my business I've created my nine to five that enables me to succeed and enables me to live a good life, and on top of that I do the dream setting and the scaling, that's a compromise. That's my definition of success. I don't need to suffer. And I will not suffer because I suffered a lot in my life. So it's like an active choice now to redefine success in this way. I like needed to hear this. So thank you. And I think that's a big part of it is like this burnout leading to illness, which sets you even further back. You're like burning out because you want to get somewhere so quickly and then it leads to Ill illness and then you're set even further back. And so I think this idea, it's so powerful, this idea that you're, they're talking about, about like really designing a life that works for you that includes rest and recovery. So thank you. <laughs> I know we're like already running out of time. I feel like I, it's been two seconds, but I want to dig into one thing for sure. And that is your experience interviewing Michelle Obama. You've done so many incredible things. I really want to zero in on this. And there's a reason why that we can get to, but I want to ask you first, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, can you take us a little bit behind the scenes of how, so, so you interviewed Michelle Obama on a stage with 8,000 people out of anybody who could have done it, it was you. How did that opportunity come to be? Yes. So it was a Hail Mary of sorts because so much of my motivation or like inspiration in the past has come because of like the depths of the hard things I've had to go through. So it's like in the dreaming space, it's always this like comeback is stronger than the setback. And so I had just had endometriosis surgery and I had a protracted recovery because of complications. So I was like in recovery for 14 weeks, something crazy like that. And at the tail end of it, a friend messaged me and was like, do you want to see Michelle Obama on her book tour? This was when she was doing her Becoming book tour. I said, absolutely. And we looked up different places and it turned out that Colorado was the cheapest, even with flights of places to go to attend. So we bought VIP tickets. So again, you know, the financial capacity to be able to do that and VIP tickets enabled you to, to go to a meet and greet with Mrs. Obama. And when I landed in Colorado that day, the news had hit that she was doing, going to extend the tour and do four Canadian cities, one of which was going to be Edmonton, Alberta, which is just a few hours from where I was born and raised in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And so I thought to myself, who is going to interview Mrs. Obama in Alberta? And I was like, me. 
it's got to be me. It was like a download that it, my intuition and my instinct just couldn't shake. And it was like, okay. So I sat and I wrote on my phone in my notes app, which I still have a copy of that exact note, the pitch I was going to say when I met her. I knew at a meet and greet, like you have maybe 10, 15 seconds with the person. So I was like, when am I ever going to be in front of Mrs. Obama again with this call to do a specific thing like this? So we go to the meet and greet. This wonderful group of women in front in front of us are like so keen, so pumped. They're all there for their like, I think it was their 55th birthdays. They all were around the same time and came up for this trip. So we were chatting and they're like, tell us about you. And I told them about the pitch and they were like, oh my God, we're going to help you. And so as soon as they went up to Mrs. Obama, she was chatting with them and they're like, we don't want to waste any time. This young woman has something she needs to ask you. So we're going to take our picture, but then you got to give her some time. Could not have been a better lead up. So they take their picture and she pulls me forward and she's holding both my hands and she listens to me pitch and just say, you know, I am born and raised in Grand Prix, Alberta. I had this whole thing of relating also to her journey and experience with various things that she's seen her family's members go through, her experience with with grief, with seeing a friend, you know, to pass away from cancer and really trying to connect with her in this way and then sharing points of reference. I go through, actually, I have a power of pitch, how to pitch well resource on our website that really dives into the nitty gritty of the pitch in that moment, if people are interested in checking it out. But it essentially really galvanized her in this 20 seconds. And at the end of it, I, I shared, I was like, you know, you're going to Alberta. I am born and raised there. I have interviewed, you know, hundreds of or over a hundred people in my career. It's something I'm deeply passionate about and I would love to interview you in Grand Prairie. And she responds and says, you know, this is destiny. We were talking about last night who would be the interviewer. I'm going to put you in touch with my chief of staff. And then she introduces me to Melissa, her chief of staff. And she said, we're going to figure this out. And so then I go to the side with Melissa and we have a sidebar and she's like, okay, tell me what happened because I don't know what just happened. <laughs> so I pull her in. She gives me her card. I email her and they follow up in the new year. And she says, you know, I've been thinking of you. We're going to figure this out. So we go back and forth and it's tentatively kind of a, it's going to happen. But then as it gets closer, she shares that things were just so intense that they've landed on one of Mrs. Obama's very good friends, Robin Roberts from Good Morning America, who's going to come and do the Vancouver and Edmonton shows. I was devastated. I remember just like getting so sad and crying that day talking to my father-in-law and he had something very big happen in his life. So it just took our focus over that way, which kind of, I think was a blessing. But then fast forward a few months and she's coming to Ottawa and a local friend helps facilitate a conversation with the organizers. And it was like, no, we've got someone else. We've got someone else. And then a week before the event, they called me and said, would you like to interview Mrs. Obama? And I was like, hell Yes. <laughs> and I had prepped for this interview back in March, and this was in October, so it was beyond ready to do this. I had to go to New York, and I got my outfit there and, and bought my first pair of Louboutins for the, for the, in, bright, in red because she's in Canada. And we took the stage, and it was such a powerful hour of conversation and connection and storytelling. And, you know, she said, after we were leaving, she said, like, that was great. Like, I'm going to be thinking about this for some time to come, and that meant a lot to me. And my parents were there, and it was just a deeply, deeply wonderful experience, a once-in-a-lifetime experience that I'm so grateful to have had. And to have been able to do what I'm best at in a venue like that was absolutely incredible. So that's my long-winded how it happened. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that because I think, and there, there's a reason I wanted to ask you about this and it's because I know when I release this episode, the people in my network who know me from Winnipeg and, you know, my colleagues and my 
people I went to university with are going to see this and be like, how did you land Komal as a guest? And I'm sure that people saw you and were like, how did you land Michelle Obama as a person that you interviewed? And I wanted you to go through that story because I want people to know that sometimes it's truly just having a vision of what you want to do and then asking and putting yourself out there and you did it with her and I did it with you. And I really want people to take that away of just like what can happen when you put in the request and have that kind of like self-belief and just see how it goes and see where it goes and be okay with if it, if it doesn't happen, but just to put yourself out there because you just never know who's going to be on the other side that says yes. It's unreal what can happen if you have the courage to ask. And I'm so happy that you did, Gajal, and I'm so happy to be here for this conversation. And it was so much fun to dive into everything together. I guess just kind of as a last question, where can people find you? And if people want to connect with your work, where would they go to do that? Amazing. So Instagram's always my favorite spot. So at Komal Minhas, K-O-M-A-L-M-I-N-H-A-S or komal.com, K-O-M-A-L.com for any resources or follow-ups or things to build your resiliency or thought leadership. We'd love to see you over there. And Gajal, I actually have a last question for you. And it would be with this show, what is your vision for impact of it? And like, what do you want to see come from this for the le- legacy you're building or or like your vision for for your impact overall? It's so hard not to get emotional talking about it. I grew up really, really shy, like painfully shy. And I don't think anybody would have that that knew me back then or has known me through my life would would ever think that I would be the person to be in front of the camera or to be speaking with people of such notoriety like as as you. And what I want is for people to see me do it so that they know that they could do it too. Whatever it is, it's not going to look like this for everybody, but I want people to know that whatever it is that like you could have asked me at 12 years old what I wanted to do and this would have been it. And I took so many other routes because it didn't feel like possible. You know, it's like I studied finance and then I went into talent acquisition. And then probably six months ago, I just was like, I'm just going to do it. Like we're in this world where we can create and whatever happens, happens. And I want people to see this exact moment where I'm speaking with you and know that whatever they want, they can do too. I love that. And it is so true and such a powerful last note to close out on because our dreams are our compass for what we are most destined to be here to do. And when we clarify our intention around them as well and see that it's so pure and so like clear for you, you're clearly doing exactly what you're meant to. And so it's it's a privilege to be a small part of that. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Como, truly. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Land a Job You Love podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you're interested in learning more about career coaching services with me, you can visit the link in my bio on Instagram at sparkcareerco. I hope you have a great day.